I want to start with a question this morning. What is the unique God-given purpose for your life? Not the purpose for your life that everybody shares, which is to glorify God and to enjoy Him, but what is the unique purpose God has for your life? What is your mission on this earth? You know, I think this is a question a lot of people ask. The book Purpose Driven Life came out, what, several years ago now, right? And it's one of the most uh, sold books in human history besides the Bible. Because people are trying to figure out what is the purpose in their life. I've never personally read it. I don't know if it's good or bad. But it is a book that many people have gone to who have appreciated it greatly because they're looking for purpose in their life. They're trying to figure out what is their mission in life. And it's interesting because really the only people that don't think about this are probably little children. You take teenagers trying to figure out, what am I supposed to do with my life? What is God's purpose for my life? What am I called to do? You look at uh, middle-aged men who've been working a job for 10 years, still trying to figure out, what is the purpose of my life? What am I supposed to do with my life? Where am I headed with my life? What does God want me to do with this life? And I think no matter where you're at, you're wondering this question. What is the purpose of my life? And then there was light. And so what's so interesting about today's passage is we're going to see a man who has this great purpose in his life. He is a servant, a no-name servant who shares a part of God's glorious plan of redemptive history. And he has this small part in this amazing gift of God's grace. You know, in, in Scripture, it talks about that we should be servants of Christ. First Peter 2.16 says, Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. And so how are you called to live out your life as a servant of God in a unique way according to the gifts and abilities and calling of God in your life. That's what we're going to look at today. And we're going to look at it through the life of this servant. So if you would open up to Genesis chapter 24, and we're going to look at the first 28 verses. This is actually the largest chapter in the book of Genesis. And so we're going to break it down for you. And we're going to look at the first 20, 28 verses. And we're going to look at how should we, as servants of God, live our life? How should we, as servants of Jesus Christ, live our life? How does that affect us on a daily basis? And we're going to look at it through the lens of this servant of Abraham. Genesis chapter 24, verse 1 through 28. Now Abraham was old, well advanced in years. And the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. And Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all that he had, put your hand under my thigh, that I may make you swear by the Lord of God of heaven and God of earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites, among whom I dwell, but will go to my country and to my kindred and take a wife for my son Isaac. The servant said to him, Perhaps the woman may not be willing to follow me to this land. Must I take your son back to the land from which you came? Abraham said to him, See to it that you do not take my son back there. 
The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred, and who spoke to me and swore to me, to your offspring I will give this land, he will send his angel before you, and you shall take a wife for my son from there. But if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be free from this oath of mine. Only you must not take my son back there. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swore to him concerning this matter. matter. Then the servant took ten of his servants, ten of his master's camels, and departed, taking all sorts of choice gifts from his master. And he arose and went to Mesopotamia and the city of Nahor. And he made the camels kneel down outside the city by the well of water at the time of evening, the time when women go out to draw water. And he said, O Lord, God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. Behold, I am standing by the spring of water, and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Let the young women to whom I shall say, Please let down your jar that I may drink. And who shall say, Drink, and I will water your camels. Let her be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. But this I shall know, by this I shall know that you have shown steadfast love to my master. Before he had finished speaking, behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, came out with the water jar on her shoulder. The young woman was very attractive in appearance, a maiden whom no man had known. She went down to the spring and filled her jar and came up. Then the servant ran to meet her and said, Please give me a little water to drink from your jar. She said, Drink, my lord. And she quickly lit down her jar upon her hand and gave him a drink. When she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw water for your camels also until they have finished drinking. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough and ran again to the well to draw water. And she drew for all his camels. The man gazed at her in silence to learn whether the Lord had prospered his journey or not. When the camels had finished drinking, the man took a gold ring weighing a half shekel and two bracelets for her arm weighing 10 gold shekels and said, please tell me whose daughter are you? Is there room in your father's house for us to spend the night? She said to him, I am the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, whom she bore to Nahor. She added, we have plenty of both straw and fodder and room to spend the night. The man bowed his head and worshiped the Lord and said, blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness towards my master. As for me, the Lord has led me in the way to the house of my master's kinsmen. Let's pray. God, as we approach your word this morning, Lord, we know all your scripture is useful for teaching, rebuking, and correcting in righteousness, Lord. And so we pray this morning that you would teach us what we need to know, God that we would live a life that is honoring and glorifying to you, that it is a life in service to you as a good king. Transform our hearts this morning. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. This chapter 
opens in a verse that is easy to pass over. It opens by saying, now Abraham was old. Not only was he old, he was well advanced in years. Abraham was about 140 years old. That is old, right? That is old. And it says, the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. And so in Abraham's 140 years, he had been tremendously blessed by God. You know, we're walking through the book of Genesis. And here we are in Genesis 24, and we can look back over the life of Abraham, which is coming to an end. And we can see how God has greatly blessed him. God has brought Abraham out of his homeland, brought him to the land of Canaan. He has given him flocks. He has given him servants. He has given him a wife and a child in miraculous form. God has blessed Abraham tremendously. But there is still one blessing yet to come. You see, the Lord had promised Abraham that he, his descendants would inherit the promised land, that they would inherit the land of Canaan, that they would rule over it, that it would be theirs. But there's two problems with that promise as we come to this chapter. The first is this. They, only, they don't own any of the Well, they own a small burial plot, right? They own a small piece of land that he bought to bury his wife, Sarah. And so they don't own the land. The other problem is this, and this is what it's going to address today is that his son Isaac, who's 40 years old, doesn't have a wife. He's not married, and there are no children coming down the pipeline. And so how could this land be given to Abraham's descendants if his only son has no children at all? And so Abraham, on his deathbed, turns to his most loyal, faithful, wisest servant and says, find my son a wife. That is my final plea in this life. Find my son a wife. And the major focus of this chapter is to show how God has preserved his remnant from Christ, uh, excuse me, from Adam and Eve all the way through Christ, but preserved his remnant that he promised to Abraham and to Isaac, that they would have children, that they would have descendants to inherit this land. But as we see this master plan of God's redemption, we see this servant, this unnamed servant who plays a major part in carrying out God's redemption. And so that's what we're going to look at today. And what I want to look at and see is that as we look at this servant's life, what what can we learn about this servant and how we are to live and follow the Lord, how we are called to be a part of his grand story of redemption. And really, in all of human history, we will be an unnamed servant to the multitudes, even though we will be known by God. And so let's look and see what this servant's life is like. First, we see the servant's mission. And we see Abraham giving this mission to him. And it's a very simple mission, although a very difficult mission. We just saw a few verses prior to verse 4. He says, don't take a wife from the Canaanites. Now, Abraham wasn't a racist But Abraham knew that his child must marry someone who knows and loves the Lord. He knew the power of marriage. And he knew that if his son married a non-believer, it would lead him astray. And so he says, go get a wife from my hometown, one who worships and serves the Lord and brings him back. And then in verse 4, he articulates this. He says, go to my country and my kindred, my family and take a wife for my son, Isaac. And so this is the mission given to the servant. Go back 
and find a wife for Isaac. But we also see that this mission is somewhat impossible. You know, this, this chapter isn't really an instruction book on how to get a wife for your kid, right? You don't take your servant and say, hey, travel to Missouri, find some woman, tell her to come back, and they're going to get married, right? That, that, this isn't the instruction book. This is actually quite difficult what Abraham is asking him to do. It's actually outside the realm of what the servant can produce. Abraham says, go to this town, right? Go to this area, go to this homeland for me and find a wife. Now to travel there would have taken about a month. It was about 550 miles from where Abraham was to his home. And so this servant would have traveled up to a month to get to this place with all of these camels and all of this these possessions, to go and find the wife. And when he gets there, he needs to tell a woman or ask a woman, hey, will you leave everything? Will you leave everything you know? Will you, need, will you leave your land? Will you leave your parents? Will you leave your family? Will you leave your friends to come and marry this man whom you have never met in a land that you have never seen? And so this is an impossible mission. And the servant knows that he even says to Abraham in verse 5, he says, Perhaps the woman may not be willing to follow me to this land, right? Perhaps she won't come. Maybe she has common sense and she's not going to do it. Must I then take your son back to the land from which you came? Should I take him back so she can meet him and know who he is and marry him? But Abraham responds with this bold confidence in the mission. You see, Abraham doesn't want... Isaac to be taken back because he knows that there's a chance that Isaac might fall in love with that land, that Isaac and his wife might want to stay around her family. But this was the promised land of Canaan, and this is where the promise was to be fulfilled. And so you see the confidence of Abraham in verse 6. Abraham said to him, see to it that you do not take my son back there. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred and who spoke to me and swore to me, to your offspring, I will give this land. He will send his angel before you, and you shall take a wife for my son from there. We see Abraham's absolute confidence that God will fulfill his promise to his children, even on his dying bed. And he's so confident that he says to the servant, if you don't find a wife, you are released from this oath and you can go. Because he is so confident that the angel of the Lord, as it says here, will lead him to a wife for Isaac. Lead him to a woman who will leave everything to come marry a man that she has never met. And so this is the mission of this servant. So let me ask you, what is your mission? You know, we have this general mission that I mentioned earlier to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. But what is your specific mission? My guess is it isn't to go find a wife for Isaac. But what, what is your mission? You know, when I hear that term, mission from God, I think of the movie Blues Brothers. Maybe you've seen it. And one of their famous lines is, we're on a mission from God, right? Anytime they meet an obstacle, they say, we're on a mission from God. They, 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 they reassemble this band after they get out of prison to try to earn money, to take it, to, to pay off the government so that they can keep this orphanage, this Catholic orphanage that they grew up in. And wherever they go along the way, whatever police come in their way, whatever it is, they say, we're on a mission from God. We know what we are destined to do. And so they are set on getting to Chicago, 
to deliver the money to save the orphanage? What is your mission from God? You know, in, in seminary, we had to write our own personal mission statement. And uh, if you've never done that, that's actually something really amazing to do where you sort through, okay, what are my gifts? What are my abilities? What are my weaknesses? What are my strengths? What are my passions? What am I not passionate about? And sit down and write a personal mission statement. For me, I'll just read you mine really quick. And this was eight years ago, and so it might have changed a little bit, but it's this. Dan Jackson, this is kind of embarrassing to read, but Dan Jackson is an interpersonal being called by God to help bring people to Jesus Christ and help them grow in their faith. My focus is on starting and growing ministries through personal relationships. In addition, I have been called to help equip and plant vision into the next generation of Christian leaders. And so that's my mission statement. And I haven't revisited it until about five o'clock this morning. And so that's my vision statement, okay? But to set something out and say, how has God gifted me? How has God given me passion that I might fulfill his mission in this world for me? And so we see the servant's mission. We also see the servant's journey. As we mentioned earlier, it took up to a month for him to get to the homeland of Abraham. And when he gets there, he has to find the right woman. And through this, we see this beautiful partnership between man and God in which this servant uses his God-given wisdom, but also relies on the sovereignty and providence of God. We see his journey is filled with wisdom and prayer. When he's traveling to Haran, he makes, I don't don't know if he just thought that this would be the best thing to do, but he, he decides, you know what? I'm going to go to the spring. I'm going to go to the well, because that's where all the eligible bachelorettes go. And so intelligently, he says, this is where I'm going to go. But then in prayer, we see even his wisdom in seeking divine guidance. In verse 14, he says this. He says, let the young women to whom I shall say, please let down your jar that I may drink. And who shall say, drink and I will water your camels. Let her be the one whom you have appointed for your servant, Isaac. Now, as we read that, we think it's just an arbitrary set of actions that might identify a person. But really, what he's looking for is a woman with solid character, a woman who is hospitable and generous and giving, a woman who would be good for his servant, Isaac. You know, these camels had traveled across the wilderness for up to a month. And when when camels travel that far, they can consume up to 25 gallons of water each. And so if you have 10 camels who can consume 25 gallons of water, how many gallons is that? 250 gallons of water, right? And so what he's asking for is not something that every woman would volunteer to do. It is to fetch 250 gallons of water to water all of these camels. That is a generous woman. And so he says, this is the woman I want that will come and marry Isaac. And I love verse 21. This this just cracks me up. It says, the man gazed at her. When she was filling up all the troughs for the camels, he gazed at her. Literally, he wondered at her. He was stunned. He was amazed at her generosity and God's answer to prayer. And when she was done watering the camels, 
He asked her, whose daughter are you? And she, she told him, and he was amazed even more so because it was from the uncle of Abraham that this child came. And so it was one of his descendants from his kindred. And so we see God prospers his journey. He makes it fruitful. You know, this weekend, I, uh, I went on the men's retreat, obviously, and I met up with my old pastor, Ed McClurkin, who was over in Chatech, Wisconsin, which is kind of by Rice Lake. And uh, I remember when Trish and I, we graduated with college, I served with Young Life for a while, and then really remember God calling us to Wisconsin. And so we, we moved up to Bloomer, Wisconsin, and kind of faded in and out of a bunch of different jobs. Through that process, really received calling from the Lord to, to plant churches in Wisconsin, and so went to seminary for that. But part of the process of me coming up here was, was a purpose that I didn't even know until this weekend. I, I went to this, this retreat, and I was sitting down with a group of guys, and I said, this is my old pastor, Ed McClurkin, and, and I told him the story about how we were looking and looking and looking for churches that taught the Bible that were filled with grace and the gospel of Jesus Christ and how we had looked and looked and looked and looked. And finally, I saw this PCA church up in Chatech, which was about half hour away. And so I called the pastor and I said, hey, you know, my name's Dan. Uh, we just moved to town. We're looking for a church. Um, you know, where do you guys meet? And he's like, well, we meet in this house. Okay. Um, well, how long have you guys been around? We've been around for seven years or so. Okay. Okay. But how many people do you have at service on a Sunday? He goes, well, on a really full day, we have like 15 to 20 people. And I'm sitting there thinking, "Uh uh-oh, what did I just do? (laughs) I signed up for this church, and it's going to be horrible, right? Seven years, 15 to 20 people. And so Trish and I go up there, and and I remember he preached this sermon, which was just amazing. And we're driving home, and we're like, maybe he just had a good one. I don't know, you know? And so we go back the next Sunday, and again, his sermon is just amazing unbelievably rich. And so uh, we're offering praises afterwards. And I stood up and I, I just said how thankful we were for the faithful preaching of God's word and how the grace of God was poured over our heart those two Sundays that we were there. What I found out this past week makes me cry a little bit. That second Sunday that we were there, Trish doesn't know this yet. He had his resignation because he was so discouraged. And so when we follow God's will for our life through prayer, through submitting to his will, you never know the purposes that God has for you. You may not find out this side of heaven. God might send you to a place just to encourage a weary pastor or just to encourage someone who is discouraged. But you see, he prospers your obedience when you follow him when you follow the mission that he has for your life. And so we see the servant's purpose. We see the servant's journey and how God had prospered that. And finally, we see the servant's worship. In commenting on on these verses that we're about to read, Ligon Duncan says this. He says, success inflates the ego of natural man, but it humbles the man of God. Success inflates the ego of natural man, but it humbles the man of God. What he's reminding us is that when success happens, when we follow the will of God, it is natural, it is sinful for us to say, look at me, look at all I have done. I have done great things. But you see that success 
as God defines it, is only because God is in it. And the servant recognizes this. In verse 26, as soon as Rebekah comes and she starts to give water to the camels before he even finishes his prayer, he, he does this. In verse 26, it says, The man bowed his head and worshipped the Lord. The servant's exaltation of God is a recognition of his humble place in, divine, in a divine plan. That his view of himself did not inflate, but his view of God inflated as he prospered the mission that God had called them to. You know, the reason that God prospered his mission, his servant's mission, is because of his steadfast love. We see in this worship service by the servant in this prayer, both the reason that God prospered him, but also the means by which God prospered him. We see the reason that, that God's steadfast love is the reason that he prospered the mission he gave to his servant. You know, it's interesting in this passage, this term hesed, it's a, it's a Hebrew term that talks about the steadfast love of God. It appears three times in this short little passage, twice in his opening prayer, where he says to him, he says in verse 12, he says, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. And then he's asking this camel thing, you know, like make it clear by having her give water to my camels. And then he says, by this, I shall know that you have shown steadfast love to my servant. And so he says, God, show your steadfast love. And then Rebecca comes and gives water. And then in verse 27, as he breaks out in praise, he says, blessed be the Lord, the God of my master, Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness towards my master. You see, God has a grand plan for your life. He has called you to a mission and he blesses it because of his steadfast love for you and for those he puts around you. And so that is the reason why God prospers the journey. And the means is very similar. Look in verse 27. He finishes it, telling us the means by which God has prospered. He says, as for me, the Lord has led me in the way to the house of my master's kinsmen. The servant realizes that even in his wisdom to go to the spring where all the women will be, that is the Lord who has led him there. It is the Lord who has guided him through prayer and through events that he might come and find Rebecca at the right time, the perfect wife for his master, Isaac. There's a woman named Sonia Richards. She won several gold medals uh, between 2002 and 2008, both in the Olympics and in world championships and things like that. And it says, any athlete, in this article I read, it says, any athlete of the caliber of Sonia no doubt has to put a lot of hard work and training into being successful, right? She has to work hard at her mission. But it goes on and says this. She says, I know that my talent is God's gift to me, and how I use it is a gift to him. You see, as we fulfill our mission in life, it is our gift to God. Not that, not, that, not that God's so lucky to have us, but it is our way to give back to him the gifts that he has given to us, to be used by him, to continue his story of redemption, and to play our part as that unknown servant in this glorious story 
that he has brought together. And so we see the mission of the servant. We see the journey of the servant. We see the worship of the servant. That's how we should live as servants of God. Finding our mission that he has called us to. Fulfilling the journey, no matter how difficult or how far it is. And then worshiping the God that we serve. And so that's how we do it. But there's one question left that I want to address, and it's probably the biggest question, which is, why should we be servants of God? Why should we be servants of the Lord Jesus Christ? It is a whole lot easier to sit on the couch, isn't it? It would have been a whole lot easier for the servant to just tell Abraham, no, I will not make that oath with you. I will stay here in my house where it is comfortable, where it is nice, where there is plenty of water, and I probably won't die. What would motivate us to sacrificially live in a way to fulfill the mission God has for our life? There are two answers I have. The first is this. When we choose to be servants of God and not servants of ourselves, we are choosing to be servants of a greater story. I think all of us want to be part of that greater story of God's redemption, don't we? We don't want our life to, to start and end with us, but we want to be part of this grand story of God's redemption. The second answer is this. The second answer to why should I live out my life as a servant of God is because we have a great servant in Jesus Christ. Philippians 2, Paul is exhorting the church to be servants to one another, to humbly serve one another. And he writes this in Philippians 2, 5 through 8. He says this, Have this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus Christ is the great servant of God. Jesus Christ is the great servant of you. And it was very clear to him what his mission was. And it was to come and to rescue sinners. And the journey was not easy. He came in humility in the form of a man. He lived a life with the pains of the fall all around him. He suffered ridicule and mocking. He was beaten. He, was, he, was, he had crowns put on him and nailed into his head. He was hung on a cross to die for your sin and to die for my sin. That was the journey he was called to, to fulfill his mission. And then he died and he rose again that we could be risen again with Christ. And he sits at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us. That is his mission. So that you and I could worship the living God. So that you and I can find the mission that God has called us to in this life. And so that you and I, in the midst of that mission, can give all the glory to God. Let's pray. Gracious God, I know there are many here trying to figure out what is the mission that you have called them to in their life. There are many who are wondering, God, does my life have purpose? Does it have meaning? And yet we know 
through the story of this servant and every servant who has come through Scripture that we have the glorious privilege to be a part of this great story of your redemption, God. We don't always see how that bears fruit, Lord, but I pray that we would be sensitive to your Holy Spirit, Lord, that we would be in prayer, that we earnestly be seeking where you're calling us to live on mission, God, whether it be in our workplace or in our homes or in our neighborhoods, God. Pray that you would give us the courage to get off the couch, to go, to live a life of mission. And as you bear fruit in whatever way you deem, God, that we would give glory and worship to you. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.